Welcome back to the Philip Duff Show, and I'm sitting down with none other than Kimmy Winkler, once described as the Taylor Swift of liquor sales in New York. Kimmy, what's up? Hi, how's it going? I'm good. This is, I think, the earliest podcast we have ever recorded on this show. It does feel early for booze people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Normally, I'm in the gym, obviously. Oh, uh, same. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing this thing where you wait 90 minutes to have your first coffee, right? So you wake up, you go right outside, you walk for 10 minutes, and you don't have your coffee for an hour and a half. And I'm not sure about the health benefits, but I really fucking enjoy that coffee when I have it. Wait, but there's a whole walking element? You, like, walk for 10 minutes first? Yeah, so the the idea is literally as soon as you wake up, whether on an alarm or naturally – or the police kick you in the in the side. Um, you just throw on some clothes and you go outside and you walk, uh, if it's past sunrise, for like 10 minutes. And that just has such an effect on your various hormones. It tells your body, hey, time to wake up. And at the same time, your body sets a clock that will start you being sleepy in about 12 to 14 hours. I right? like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's the easy bit because I normally do that anyway on the way to the gym. Um, the coffee thing took a little getting used to, but it's supposed to prevent you crashing in the afternoon. All right. That tends I'm to happen after a three martini lunch anyway. <laughs> that's true. Well, I am delighted to have you here, Kimmy, because we've never really got to ha- hang out seriously, except when we were sitting next to each other on the train out to New Jersey that one time. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. New Brunswick. So for the savages that listen to this show, what's the Kimmy Winkler 101? How did you come to scale the heights of the industry and get the coveted invitation to the Philip Duff show? Oh, my God. I don't know. I don't know how I got that invitation. It must have been a slow week or month for you. Um, But I I don't I started in the industry a long time ago, but I um. I was never really a bartender. I'm a little afraid to say that out loud. So I kind of came about it in an unusual way, I guess. Um, I started about 13 years ago. Um, and I was just sort of a, an, a little babe trying to be an actor in New York. And I um, had a friend um, who uh, was working for... There are a few journeys to this. I actually met Nicola Risk along the way before she was like the great big awesome deal that she is. And um, a friend of mine, uh, Danielle, who still works in the industry. Um, But uh, and we were kind of all doing little part time things for liquor companies. And I did not know hardly anything about spirits. But then um, uh, one of my friends was working for uh, William Grant at the time, uh, a couple years into like part time stuff. And uh, she needed somebody who could basically kind of memorize a good amount of information on single malt scotch whiskey and who kind of liked presenting and like talking to people and stuff, which was totally a me thing. And I remember that job paid $75 an hour, which I thought was $1 million at that time. Um, (laughs) And um, basically handed over some information about um, Valvenia and Glenfiddich. And I learned all those two books and would do presentations to groups of about like 40 people and um the sort of game changer moment for me was I remember I was doing one of the presentations on um I don't remember if it was Balvenie or Glenfiddich 
And a man in the audience um, asked me a question about like an Isla scotch or something. And I had the perfect stock answer, which was, I'm not quite sure about that, but I'll look into it and I'll get back to you. And I watched myself completely lose like all respect of the entire room because it came, became very apparent that I only knew what I only knew, which was what I was telling them. And it was very embarrassing for me. And so I started um, going to big whiskey bars at that time and like Ward 3 and um, the Highlands and places like that and just trying to get to know the bartenders and try as many scotches as I could. And um, then the people that were sort of my bosses at that time sort of noticed that I was doing that and spending my own money to try to like learn more about it. Um, and then sort of in a roundabout way that turned into my first role as um, what we were calling at the time a Stoli diplomat, which was a, a local ambassador for Stoli. And the ask was kind of just that, like, okay, well, kind of what you're doing, but um, we want you to talk about Stoli now and try to, you know, um, meet as many of much of the bar community as you can and, uh, you know, work with Stoli. And that that was how my first job came about. Um, yeah. In the industry as the Stoli, little Stoli ambassador. That was quite a while ago. You've, uh, you've done quite a bit since then, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, then, sorry. I Then I became just fascinated about spirits and um, very quickly gave up the ideas of um, being an actress and was just fascinated by this entire industry, which is like so cool. I think that all of us get to be a part of it. And um, uh, I worked on the uh, William Grant portfolio for a long time. Um, and then I worked for... Um, what was at the time called Sydney Frank, which was um, my role was primarily Jägermeister, which was such a fun job. And I, I think most of the friends that I have in this industry started in that role, which was just the coolest like trade facing uh, role talking about Jägermeister and getting people like, well, I didn't have to convince Souther. Souther was my first ally because Souther loves Jäger. But, you know, working with bars like Amoria Margo to do cocktails with Jägermeister, that was like 2013 to 16, I think. So that was, I know everybody thinks Jäger is so cool right now. And it is, but it was like a tough battle there for a long time. Um, and then, um, for, and I, we also launched at that time, um, for, for the very first time, we lost, launched Casamigos and Monkey 47. So that was a pretty fun role. Those were some cool brands. And then, um, from there, I, I worked with um, uh, Nova Fogo Organic Cachaca, um, and then um, I've been working with Kapali Rum for the last couple of years, and, you know, I'm about to start off on a whole fresh new adventure from here, starting in, you know, just a couple of days, so. This won't That's go the... out until the 25th, so oh, okay. do you want to tell us? I, I would love to tell you. I, I mean, I haven't started yet, but I don't you told me. Big... I won't say it. I know. But... Um, well, I'm going to start, um, a new role with, um, Pinhook whiskey, Pinhook bourbon. And I'm so freaking excited about it. Honestly, I'm That's really the one with the horse on the label, isn't it? It is. And I am so, I don't want to talk about it though. Cause I don't hardly know much about it except for that. It's delicious whiskey. And I can't wait to honestly learn more about it. Cause you know, like the educational part is kind of my favorite part of working in booze. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm starting that next week and I am just so freaking excited. It's going to be an awesome, awesome new journey. So you're back to whiskey because if I'm not uh, wrong, this is the first whiskey. If, if I'm not wrong, this is the first whiskey you've worked on since those first gigs with Balvenie and stuff, no? 
Well, I unintentionally skipped over. I consulted on um, a cool Texas whiskey, one of my old um, during pandemic when we, uh, we I was laid off. I think most of us were. Um, I consulted with the Texas whiskey called Milam and Green. Oh yes, um, Heather. Uh, Heather, Heather yeah. So yeah. Heather was like one of my original mentors back when she was doing Glenfiddich, and so um, I worked with her and that team um, during deep, deep pandemic times. Um, which was pretty cool. But yeah, this is um, um, my first like full-time role working, especially with uh, American. I mean, I did um, Hudson back in that time too, but um, yeah, I'm excited. And for anybody who has spent much time with me at all, they, uh, I mean, Southern, I drink rye whiskey constantly and um, I'm just excited to get to talk about it and get back into that world, I guess. So. Yeah, when I taped a podcast with Souther, I actually brought some very strong rye whiskey with me. And towards the end of the podcast, you can tell we are obliterated. <laughs> like, uh, maybe we shouldn't have started with 48% ABV rye whiskey at three in the afternoon. <laughs> Sounds like a fun time, though. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, you're breaking down all kinds of barriers here. This is only, you're, I think you're only the third woman on the podcast. And it's only the second sober one we've done. At least I'm sober. I'm not going to assume you are but i am sober but i you know I, I i do have my coffees it's not quite the same but Depen uh. depends what's in there as i say this <laughs> this coffee is fucking me up because i had to wait an hour and a half to have the damn thing so i still i have to try this because i definitely make coffee the first 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 thing in the morning which i guess is probably not the best but App apparently yeah i mean it, it's it's a I think it might be uh, a placebo effect type thing. Just because you're putting some thought into it, you're thoughtful about other things too. I don't know. I, that makes sense. You're making a conscious decision to do something specific. So, yeah, I get it. So, Kimmy, you're an example to all of us in that you gave up on your dreams very sensibly, right? <laughs> Where did you grow up? I, I grew up in Norman, Oklahoma. Oh, a jillion miles from here, yeah. What? is that like do people have teeth there or do they still have horses and buggies like how does it work uh they, we definitely have teeth there yes yes i i loved growing up in norman i i miss it and i i don't go home as much as i wish i did but um most of my family's still there norman is where the university of oklahoma is so it's a college town um at least when i lived there things could have changed a lot but it was the third largest city in oklahoma so, you know, it's like a big, big city place. And how um, many people, what would the population be? Oh, that I actually have no idea. I don't know what that number is. Did you go to but college I, there? I went I went to OU for a while before I didn't and then moved to New York. <laughs> to make it in the big city. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Well, there's a very long tradition of people who, you know, wanted to be in acting and and wound up in this business like the masters of whiskey dale degroff is himself a failed actor right in his own words i couldn't get booked for anything and you know i started making cocktails and now i'm on the today show so from the king himself all the way down well i've never been on the today show but um i think when you're when you're if you study acting at all like every single you you would like and almost always have a teacher who tells you that like if you could imagine yourself doing literally anything else, do that because this is really hard. And I was always like, no, even my friend who originally got me in the industry, she will tease me to this day. Cause I always used to be like, 
I don't care if I'm poor forever. I'm never getting a real job and all this stuff. And like, then when the full-time role, my first job with Stoli came around, she was like, it's, she was like convincing me that it wasn't a real job. She's like, I mean, like, you don't have to like go to an office and you, you know, and I was like, I, this is a salary. I don't know if I can do this to my like craft or whatever. And then it did not take me long before I was just like having such a good time. And, um, that I I don't think I ever was like, oh, today is my last day of being an actor and I'm giving up on that. I just sort of really loved what I was doing. And at one point just kind of was like, oh, yeah, I used to do that other thing. I forgot. But <laughs> yeah, anyway, I think it's more unusual that I don't have a background in bartending. I get that question a lot. Like, how did that happen? And while I've never stood behind a bar and made cocktails for a whole shift or anything, I've definitely done... I don't know, booze events and things like that, where um, I usually leave it to the professionals, but I've like shaken a few cocktails myself. So, well, one of the real reasons I wanted to get you on is you are a person that I know who's not afraid to describe your job as I'm in sales. And most people are terrified of selling, right? Definitely ex bartenders. There's this Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross uh image of hard selling and bullying and stuff like that and i think it's very at odds with the reality um yeah, yeah no i totally agree i i didn't get into um my my like i said my first jobs were trade facing jobs but it also were, they were always in support of sales and um you know i did i didn't I, I knew that if we weren't moving cases, then I wasn't doing my job. And so, you know, are you, I, and I didn't want to be like a kind of slimy salesperson, like making my quotas or my KPIs, like the bar's problem. It's definitely not. Um, so I, I don't know if I'm successful in it, but I definitely had to find a way to like move cases and, you know, change the scenery of whatever brand I was on um, without, you know, making people feel like they were taken or they're doing me a favor kind of a thing, you know? So yeah, I'm a salesperson. I work in sales and um, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I was having lunch with my friend Declan McGurk, who's now the commercial director for Boatyard Gin in Northern Ireland. And he used to be the bars manager at the Savoy. Oh, uh, we were talking about brand ambassadors and ambassadorship and ex bartenders and stuff. And he said, you know what? You shouldn't really be a brand ambassador. If you're not comfortable, if you're, you know, at a barbecue or a party and somebody says, what do you do? If you're not comfortable with saying I'm in sales, because what you just said, I think is very true. Everything is in service of moving cases and bottles. Nothing happens. We don't have nice swag or wild parties or go to tails without bottles being sold. A hundred percent true. I definitely, definitely agree with that. I remember I was traveling, um, uh, on a work trip once a couple years ago and with some coworkers and we all had the same role. And I feel like everybody at that time was really tap dancing around like sales. Like, are you a salesperson? Are you not? And I remember like going through customs and every, and one of my friends was like, what did you say? Like, you know, you have to write in your job. And I was like sales. And they were like, well, but we're not really sales. And I was like, I mean, yeah, we are. And how did you describe like being like a brand ambassador person to a customs agent? Just say you're in sales. We sell booth so and i don't think it's a nasty word i think i think you know there are a lot of kind of good sales people out there i hope um 
and we're, you know, we're selling the booze so that we can have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Something you don't realize is even if people love a product and the pricing is right and the product is, you know, being used in nice places and they're doing trade publicity, you still have to go and sell it. Even if it's your buddy who owns the bar, they still expect you to come in and sell it to them. Uh, Yes. Kind of like a, it it is how it is, but people, you know, bar owners, buyers can't be a little pampered in that sense. I, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I mean, I've never really, I will just say in New York, it can definitely be that way. It's a little tough. And even some of your friends are going to make you like jump through a few hoops and everything. But, um, I don't know. I think I always just try to be really respectful, go in on the days that they want to see people. Sometimes you have to make really clear definitions about what is a work visit or like just for these 20 minutes, can I talk to you about work stuff? And then we can go back to talking about what we did this weekend and things like that. Um, uh, But yeah, it can be tough. There's like a, a little bit of gatekeepiness. And I know we get teased a lot. There's so many like Instagram feeds that are like joking about end of the month and O and D and thousands of acronyms, which I also think are hilarious. But um, yeah, you know, we got to go in, you got to bring your bottle, you got to pour out a little taste, you know, tell the story, Um, which that's like my favorite part is just telling the story. Like what I always just say is like the reason to believe, like, why should you care about this product? And um, why do I love it? You know, and just let people taste it. Tell them, you know, the story. And remind them <laughs> it is for sale. You can order. I think half of it might be reminding people. <laughs> oh, for sure. And which one, which distributor it's with and, um, you know, just the pricing. And I think it's also helpful to know very simple things that I sometimes hear people be like, oh, like, you know, what's the front line on your product? And people are like, oh, my job's not pricing. And it's like, well, just you need to be able to tell them like how much it costs. And like, if they buy three cases, it's a little bit better for your, you know, liquor costs and things like that. And it's it, you just presenting what you have to offer. Well, again, you know, I trained a lot of ambassadors. I was one of the first ambassadors from the bar world way back in the late 90s. and. If I could choose between an ex-bartender to hire them as an ambassador and somebody with great interpersonal skills who hadn't been a bartender, I would choose the second person every time. Well, that makes you feel good, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, look at a lot of the best ambassadors are were not bartenders. Because a bartender I... has skills, but the minute you step out from behind the bar... Your your freshness, your best before date kicks in. You've got about two or three years, then nobody gives a shit that you used to work at Death & Co. You're just another ambassador. <laughs> That's, that is true. And I, th- I think we have a lot of friends, or I have a lot of friends who, um, you know, go through times in their lives where they want to get out from behind the bar and move on to something else. And um, I hope that they know that there are so many roles in booze and beverage alcohol outside of ambassadorship which is like the fun and the showy one and like i love all the bas and that we all run around with and get to meet and know and love but there's so much to do in this industry um that you don't see like running running around the best party at tails or whatever there's a lot 
lot more to go so or to do and so yeah when you yeah. started moving up did you get any like formal training and sales from any of the companies that you work for um honestly my my very first job back when i was working on the william grant portfolio i was working i was in an agency role so um although um the first role was trade facing the second was like assisting the sales team um, where, um, I was like a portfolio manager for them and, um, it was all in support of sales. And so kind of, I guess, unknowingly, yeah, like I saw into the, you know, biggest deals that they were doing with huge groups around here. And as well as like what makes a great account that's like down the street from me in Williamsburg. And I, I actually remember the first like huge deal I did. I, um, I had set up a meeting at a hotel in Midtown and um, a co well, he, I guess he was my boss at the time that was a sales um, person for William Grant. And we had messed up the times like in our calendars somehow. And I texted him and I was like, okay, I'm here. And he was like, wait, I thought this meeting was, I don't remember tomorrow or an hour from now or something like that. And then he was like, you're, you're going to have to go in on this on your own. And I was like, uh, okay. And um, it's it's not glamorous. It's not like planning a seminar at Tails, but I walked out of that meeting with a hundred case deal on one of our brands and called my boss. And I was like, "All right, I did it!" Like, and he was like, "Are you serious?" And I was like, "Yeah, I totally did it." And he was like, "What? Oh my god!" And so that was kind of like the first time I, I guess, applied what I had learned and like really nailed that sale and had a great partnership with this awesome hotel in Midtown for many years. So it was pretty cool. Pretty cool. So all the way up to, you know, being, you know, state manager, market manager, which is quite a senior position. Has there been any kind of formal training or external training that you've done or been offered? Uh, like, um, you mean outside of the company or like? Well, either I mean internally in the company, their own training course, or externally, a training that you've done. I mean, I've, I've had excellent mentors and excellent managers and excellent bosses along the way. I've also had bosses that I was like kind of knowing that I didn't want to do it the way that they did, you know, and you you learn from that, too. You really do. And um, but nobody was like, I don't know, here's like my 101 on sales. It was more just learning within, you know, do, on the job, I guess. Um, yeah, you, you, you're going to work with Dave today. He's our sales rep. <laughs> yeah, and you learn you learn about work withs and when they're valuable, like distributor work withs, when you're running around with the distributor. And sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're like, oh, I'm super into your brand. These are six accounts that I, I just can't wait for you to like tell them about the brand from your point of view. And then you have work withs where you can tell they forgot until yesterday. <laughs> and then they're just taking you to any account that will see you. And sometimes that's a little bit of a waste of your time. But even in those instances, I feel like I try to maybe just get to know that rep so that somewhere down the line, they are going to think, I mean, you just kind of have to find a reason to make it worth your time in those sort of scenarios. Um, but yeah, work withs are a real, real thing and um, managing um, distributor relationships. If, uh, you know, the last, I don't know, since like 2000. 16, I've been working on very small brands, like newer brands or, um, you know, under 20,000 case brands and things like that. And dealing with out of stock issues and how to maintain, um, like, 
respect in the community if you're like hard selling a brand um, and then it goes out of stock and you have these people supporting you and you're in a cocktail and you're on the menu, but then the distributor lets it go out of stock. I mean, that is really, it's frustrating and it's very, it's hard on our reputations because, you know, um, I don't know. I don't want to seem like a liar. <laughs> so dealing with things like that. Um, yeah. That's what all do you, what do you wish you'd known to? before you, uh, took on the position that you're at now? What would you say to the younger Kimmy? <laughs> oh my goodness. Letter um, to a young Kimmy. <laughs> well, I mean, I haven't started my new role yet, which I'm really excited about, but I would, I'd say, um, well, when I started working for little brands, I I, I went in um, coming from only had, having worked on small brands. And so I guess what I would say is like, um, just, I don't know, don't get too frustrated. And at the end of the day, we're like, we're selling booze, we're selling, you know, um, you know, a, a nice time and, uh, you know, a, a story and it's all in, it's all in good fun. And, you know, you're not like, I guess I re I remember being very young in this industry and getting really frustrated and like cr almost like no actually crying to bosses and they'd be like we're literally not saving the world or curing cancer we're selling booze like it's like you know take take a breath um and you know sort of reframe your mind to the reality of the situation and you know maybe your expense report is going to be a little bit late and like, you know, you're a human being and tell your boss and hopefully that's okay. And, you know, the out of stock issue is a real problem for this month and we'll make it up next month and it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Just keep on doing it and trying, I guess. I don't know. Don't stress out so much. Can you chill, chill? <laughs> that's so. what you tell yourself. <laughs> oh, no, I really don't know. Um because I still get like all and like flustered and stuff, but I try to be a little bit more chill about it now. And having now had like having people um, that work under me, you know, I, I think I try to do that, do that for them too, or for them to see. Um, I don't know. Food. Would you recommend that people pick up spirits qualifications? Or um, indeed bartending qualifications? <laughs> spirits spirits qualifications yeah i mean honestly i i don't have those things but i would love to and i wish i did we did recently we did a um uh uh a mentor program when, when with kapali ram when i was working with them and uh we were struggling i think or not struggling but i was trying to i think of prizes and this whole program was about mentorship and you know, bringing up younger, newer bartenders under like a more seasoned um, uh, bartender, bar manager, whatever it was. And um, my idea, which was one of the things that we ended up doing was giving away like preliminary level um, spirits training, which doesn't really cost that much. I, I, we did the um, um, WSET level one, which is not that expensive for the brand, but maybe like a little bit more money than they would be willing to pay to just like get started. Um, which I thought was really cool. And, you know, it just builds confidence. I, I have been a brand sponsor for bar five a few times and like got to like peek in and, you know, sit in on a couple of those sessions and Holy, Whoa, that is intense. It's a lot. Eh? So, 
Oh my gosh. So I have so much respect for anybody who even goes through that program. Oh my goodness. Um, so I guess I can't say for, because I don't have them. I, I definitely don't. I try to learn as much as I can about the categories and the spirits that I'm learning or that I'm working on. Um, but I think they're great. I have a, a lot of respect for people who go through those programs and who run them. And yeah, sure. And in the industry, do you think it's an advantage or a disadvantage that you're a woman? I don't think I ever really thought about it, honestly. I, I think as a woman, I've gone through my own struggles with um, um, finding people maybe not listening to me. Or um, uh, I, I think a lot of it has to do with my personality, too, though. I, I think some people just I have a lot of energy and I'm try to be as upbeat as possible and be very positive, which I guess sometimes reads as like immature or uneducated or something, but that's kind of my own struggle. I never honestly never thought about it specifically to this industry. It's just sort of my own struggle that comes up sometimes. And I try to deal with it as much grace or whatever as I can. Um, but I think it's just tough out there for a woman sometimes. And, you know, I try to, prove my worth just in my work and in what I do. So I hope it gets seen and noticed in that way, I guess. So. Well, when you look at both ambassadorship and sales, there are quite a lot of women, like not maybe not a majority, but, you know, not just token numbers either. Like there's really quite a lot and at quite senior positions. Yeah, totally. There are a lot of really smart, amazing, talented knowledgeable women out there. And, um, you know, I think we're going after the same roles. And so hopefully we have this, you know, same amount of rep representation, if not close to that. Um, but I, honestly, almost every one of my mentors has been a woman or mentors are people who I've learned a lot from, um, maybe in an unofficial capacity. I I've had, um, a lot of really powerful, um, uh, women in my upbringing in this industry. So, um, yeah, I guess I'm lucky in that way. I love it. I love it. And they're all pretty much still around to help me out at any time. So I guess we, we may not be a full half of the community, but we're so very supportive of, of each other. And, um, yeah, I think it's great. There's an awful lot of women in, in marketing roles, uh, maybe more uh, definitely almost as many as men it's one of those fields like i've i've had times stretches of a year or more where all my clients are female <laughs> <laughs> lucky you that's awesome that's awesome um yeah i don't know what the marketing um uh, like sort of vertical of the industry leans women but i don't know they're just really smart so i guess that's why they're planning the strategies for us all so so when what's the thing that surprises bartenders the most uh, when they learn about your job? Or rather, what was the most surprising thing for you learning about your job? Uh, learning about my job? Um, being I, on I the think, supply side. I Well, that, I've only been on the supplier side, I've, uh, honestly. I've worked on the supplier side through an agency or directly with the supplier um, since I started back in 2010. So I don't have any experience like on the distributor side or anything like that. I think it is surprising to buyers. Um, just, I mean, just that I, I wasn't a bartender and then I kind of came at this from like a different angle. Um, 
but I, I don't know. I, I just try to know as much as I can about the brand and the category. And, you know, sometimes people test you. Um, I, I ha- often have a, a separate sheet that I look at before I go into a meeting. I'm like, they're going to ask me some weird question about, I don't know what particular strain of yeast it is, or what's the like scientific name of this sugarcane strand or whatever. And I try to have those questions ready, but I feel like those are kind of just like bully questions. It's just to catch you off guard and to let's see if I can mess you up a little bit. Or um, I, I one time was giving a staff training um, to a group and uh, on a particular brand and this one person, and it was very small group. It was like four or five people. um, And uh, this one person kept interrupting me, asking me about the like um, native language of this country. And I was saying what it was. And it was like, no, I I really don't think that's true. I really don't think that's true. I really don't think that's true. And uh, well, I was, I was saying it was English and he was saying it's not. And I was like, I mean, I was just there. And then he was like, I think it's this, I think it's that. And I was like, I mean, they're literally mourning the queen right now. So I'm pretty sure it's English. And then, but just as many times as he wouldn't shut up about it, just like he knew, but he knew better about this brand than I did that I am working solely on. Um, So yeah, I guess I don't really know where I'm going with that, but I think it surprises people sometimes just like what we as brand people really know about our brands and the category. So well, I think when people learn how stuff is, I mean, most bartenders will know how stuff is distilled, fermented, all that kind of thing, because they get to visit distilleries. But how it gets from the distillery to New York and then off the boat into a warehouse and from the warehouse to a truck that delivers it to you, people have no idea. That That is, that is very true. And it, it's a complicated thing. And it is a little bit of like the man behind the curtain kind of a thing. I don't know. I think a lot of buyers often feel like, I don't know, it literally comes on a boat and like goes straight to your distributor. And it's like, oh my God, no, it does not do that. It does not do that. Even like what I was saying earlier, dealing with out of stock stuff, you know, people are like, oh, is there a shortage? And it's like, no, there literally is not a shortage. There are thousands of cases for every brand you love, like every one of them sitting in New Jersey, thousands. They're just owned by the supplier at that moment. And the distributor hasn't yet themselves ordered that product to go to their warehouse. So um, there, yeah, that whole side of the business is a very um, meticulous and frustrating and annoying part to explain like, no, no, there's literally no shortage. We have tons of it. It's just like getting it from point A to like point A, point one, point two, point three, point blah, 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 to before it gets to point B. Um, is a long road, a long road. So like everybody- and Not a excited. glamorous road. It's not glamorous. It's dusty trucks and warehouses in North Bergen, New Jersey, which yes. looks like where they dump the bodies in the Sopranos. It does. And surprisingly, it's not nearly as much fun as visiting the distillery. So we'll probably just keep doing tours there, I guess. But yeah, that that part is pretty crazy. And like dealing with the- probably very boring stuff of like cost, actually cost of goods and like what the margins are. And um, we have to think as much about that as we do as like bar people do about, you know, their beverage costs and, you know, how much can we afford? It's the same. It's like, you know, don't want to raise the price, but we've got to, you know, 
make above this and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's you- it's very nice when you get it right and you understand it. But it's also very strange to be talking to a bartender who knows everything about running a bar or owning a bar even, and actually nothing about making a spirit and getting it in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the the part that nobody talks about, though. It's like, you know, when I go into a bar and I talk to the manager, I'm not like, let me tell you how many days this this case spent on the water and in, you know, this warehouse or whatever. That's the boring part. But when you're... When your delivery arrives and it's right and my product is there, then yes, success. We did the job. We did it. And then I'll come sit at your bar and try the cocktail and we'll all have a great time. That's the goal. So <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the happy ending. Yes, yes. What's the most difficult part of your job? Um I mean, probably just just that. I mean making it work from that side when sometimes it doesn't, you know, um, that's, that's really tough. I I deal with that a lot because you you work so hard to get your brand into an account and um, then you finally do. And then when something out of your control um, messes that up, it's like very, very frustrating. That, that is very, very difficult. Um, Also uh, a lot of times people, you know, kind of I don't want to say gatekeeping because you, that's your job is to pick that as a bar manager on from my side it's your job to pick which brands you want to use at your bar and it's my job to show you why it should be mine um but you know hitting those walls where like you, you know I think managers like managers above me my bosses like they think every time you present your brand people fall in love with it and they want to buy it and that's just not true. That's just not true. And it is your brand or your spirit or whatever can be the best of whatever it is. But that doesn't always mean like you're going to get a yes. Um, that absolutely doesn't. And that's for a lot of reasons. It's not necessarily because they didn't like it. Um, it you know, they they have a million reasons. Um, but kind of moving on from those no's, you, you get a lot of no's and you just keep going. I have friends who own and run bars that... Um, or bars that I go to all the time. And, you know, they still have yet to pick up my brand and um, you just keep, you just keep going, you just keep trying. And um, I try to support the people who are supporting you. Um, I think from all brand, all brand roles that are like bar facing, account facing field people, you know, I think half of like winning is just follow through. And, you know, when, you go to an account and you tell them you're going to do something or you're going to bring them something or something like that, you know, be the one that shows up um, that actually executes and did what you said you would do. Um, Because I know that's frustrating from the bar side when you don't. And so they can get a little jaded, like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, So yeah, I guess that's more of what I try to do to battle it, but um, there's just a lot of stuff you can't control. So Try to do the best you can with what you've got. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if the product is good and the pricing is correct and the distributor is competent, by which I mean, if a bar orders it, they'll deliver it, uh, then it's a pleasure to go out and sell. You've got something yeah. that will help bars. It's only when those things are out of whack, when the pricing is wrong or the distributor is not great in delivering or... Uh, 
yeah, even the liquid doesn't live up to the promise of everything else, which does happen sometimes. I think that becomes difficult. It, it, it definitely does. I mean, you're going to have bad days. There, you're going to have those issues that we just talked about. But the reason that we do these jobs or that I do is that, you know, hopefully you're passionate about the brand that you're working on. I know I have been for, you know, most of the brands I've worked on and you can tell the story and you can give them a reason to believe and then they taste it and um, you're there, you know, you're there to support them. And um, hopefully it's just a really happy, everybody wins. Uh, I think I, that's what I'm thinking about a lot when I go into an account, like, um, what can I do for you? Like I, I talked to you for a minute and you're telling me about your bar program. You're telling me about what you're doing. Maybe you even like mention like an event or a pop-up or something that you have in the future. And then I'm constantly sitting there. Like, how can I, how can I fit into what you're already doing? You know, you, you, you're doing a great thing in here. Like, how can I add benefit to this thing that you're already awesome at? And, um, that's, that's usually how I go about it. That's my, that's the best case scenario. It's like you're you've got an awesome thing going. I just want to be a part of it. So, and apart from selling them product, what are the kinds of things that you would do with an account? Can you tell us some of the things you've done in the past, or do you think we're um, well? Just like I said, like I mean, uh, events and things. Like if if I supported an event this last weekend, there was a um, pop up at an account, and you know they wanted to use a cool rum, and so I went in and I, um, you know, I donated a couple of bottles and I, you know, hung out and I spent some time, you know, talking about the brand just to the people who are around and buying some drinks and things like that. Um, that's my favorite way is just being seamlessly included in, um, any activations that they're already doing. Um, brands, usually bigger brands have, you know, larger programming that comes down where they have to execute a certain number of um, this kind of event and, you know, three accounts in each market or something like that. Um, you know, I, I work on smaller brands, so it's a little bit more homegrown and what's going to work personally for each account. Um, but it's all different. You know, I did that event for the mentor program I was talking about where we purposefully planned it at a strong account that had been supporting us for a really long time. Um, and yeah, just supporting Supporting the people that support you, meaning who is who is buying your product. I want to support you. You're doing a great job. Thanks. Well, our listenership, the largest chunks are the U.S. and Europe. And in Europe, obviously, you can pay listing fees. Like a large part of your job, if you were based in the U.K. or uh, Germany or something like that, would be going around to bars and saying, OK, we want to be the pouring rum in your bar and we will pay this much or we'll give you what's called a retro, which is at the end of the year, we'll look at all the bottles you sold. And if you sell this many, we'll give you one euro per bottle retroactively. Or if you sell this many, maybe we'll give you one euro 20 per bottle, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, that probably sounds great, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's <laughs> very well, down- dry. The downside to it is the deals get done and you never see that person again. Whereas the American system is certainly flawed, but if you're in sales or an ambassador here, maybe a quarter of your time is actually just going out to bars, shaking hands and kissing babies and spending money. That's the effect of listing fee in a lot of cases, right? 
Totally, totally. I mean, that what you just said um, about sort of, I think what we would generally call like a pay to play situation um, as I like the way you of, whispered that as if someone was listening. What <laughs> if the That's government's listening to the Philip Duff show? <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely illegal in this country. You definitely cannot do that. So, um, but you still want to support these accounts for, you know, so you have to find ways to do it. And generally showing up is how you do it. Um, and um, I agree with you. I think even um, if you, if a brand did choose to do that, you know, they still tend to feel lost when nobody shows up. So, um, you know, we, in New York, we have a really healthy, active industry, like, a, I mean, group of people. So, I mean, even last night I went to like, um, a couple of different industry events that were just happening around town in New York, just that happy hour, um, with my friend Allie, um, at subject. And then there was a big night at Fawn last night. And all of those are ways that brands are supporting accounts. Um, we're just fortunate that it includes us that we get to go and hang out, you know, and, um, it's a little bit of like a chance to like show off too. like, look at my new menu placement at subject or, um, you know, what else is going on around the city? Um, which I, I think I appreciate that a little bit more than the straight, like pay to play situation that we can't do. So <laughs> we can't talk about it. It's, it's illegal everywhere except uh, Nevada, I believe. <laughs> I didn't even know it was le legal in Nevada. I've, I, in my whole career, I've always been an East coast based person. So I always feel like funny visiting like California or something. I'm like, I don't know. This is like a whole new world out here. Well, the, the laws are completely different in New Jersey, let alone in California. This is uh, these these United States aren't as united as they as they appear from the outside. That's true. That's true. There are even the control states where it gets weirder. You know, where like the state run stores, and um, I remember on one brand I was working, we were trying to launch in a control state, and you have to like do a test. It's kind of like dealing with the IRS, but it's like booze. So you're like trying to convince the IRS that they need your like niche brand. And they're kind of like, no, nah, I don't think so. And so you like have to prove it to them. Um, but yeah, liquor laws in the U.S. are really, really weird. They're different every single state. So now my, my favorite liquor law in the U.S. is actually a Californian one. Um, and the, it's an exception to a law in California. You can't do um, tastings in private homes unless it's the home of a celebrity that's the exception to the california state that's law that's not real that's it not real. real it's real what the heck are you serious i taught a class basically you know selling booze in america 101 for the irish trade export commission board bia and i did a bit of research i was actually talking to the daughter of the founder of mhw and they have like a really tight top notch olympic level compliance department like they've done 80,000 certificate of label approvals. They know their shit. Uh, and she told me about that. And I was like, that's not real. So I, I really looked it up. It is a real thing. I think that's how brilliant. Do you, how do you how know do you who's a celebrity? The, yeah. How do you decide? Like, what if you have a bajillion million followers on Instagram? Does that make you a celebrity? Do you it have to have like won a, an Oscar or a Grammy or something? Like... Yeah, that hey, I, I don't know. I think it goes down to the person who does TikTok dances, maybe, and has 10,000 followers. But yeah, that's the way it goes. 
That is definitely one of the goofiest rules I've ever heard. I've ever heard. I, I remember I had a, a coworker and I don't honestly don't remember which state, but um, she had to do uh, dry tastings in stores. I don't, what do you do? Like you sniff just the bottle dry? or? Yeah, I don't know. But like you, for whatever reason in that state or whatever, you couldn't pour samples like at a store. So they had to do dry tastings. And I just never could quite get my head around that one. I'm like, do you just give them a t-shirt and hope that that makes them buy it? I don't know. Drinks on them, like breathe in their face. (laughs) 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 You have like all the botanicals out and then you're like, imagine this in liquid form. Yeah. I don't know. Martini glass with an olive in it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. I don't know. Well, you do have around the world, you do have dark markets still where you're not allowed to advertise alcohol at all. Like Poland was that way for a long time. And uh, the Balls Company, you know, like Balls Liqueurs and Cordials and the other Geneva, uh, (laughs) they had, uh, they've sold the brand, but they built up Balls Vodka. And it was huge. At one stage, it was like the third or fourth best-selling vodka in the world based almost only on sales in Poland. And how did they do that without being able to advertise uh, um, you know, no TV, no billboards. The Polish word for vodka is vodka, of course. But the Polish word for yacht is lodka. So they bought a racing yacht. I think they actually bought one of Richard Branson's former racing yachts. And they renamed it the Balls Lodka. I'm winking now. Uh, and they promoted that and they took bartenders out on it. And they had billboards with the Balls Lodka all around town. That was how they kind of uh, crawled through a loophole. So this was, they were advertising the boat, not the vodka. Yep. That was, that was very clever. That was very clever. That sounds like some, if if anybody out there was trying to sell booze during COVID when you couldn't go into a bar and you couldn't go into a liquor store and you couldn't get any like liquid to lips sampling, that was sort of the magical equation. That sounds like some very clever you know, workaround stuff for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff we have to do, but let's get back to the basics. Walk me through how you would do a visit to an account. Let's say you haven't been there before. You think you've identified the account and you think my brand would work there, right? The numbers work. I've looked at their cocktails and I've looked at their back bar and the pricing works. You know, the, they could carry this. And you've got an appointment, right? Walk us through it from your prep to the appointment itself. What do you do? What do you think the key points are? First, I'd say if you already have the appointment, that's you're like nine steps ahead. Like usually it's it doesn't start that way. I mean, if I if you're not in your home market, I'm gonna back up just a little bit here so before we get to the appointment, if that's okay. So no, I mean, normally I would go into a bar. And if I don't know anybody there, I know nobody. And I probably first just sit at the bar and like kind of try to make a friend with the bartender, whoever's working, get them talking just to, and honestly, you're researching, you're just trying to learn about the bar. You know, this is Katie. She works on Tuesdays. It's usually kind of slow until 6 p.m. Weirdly, Wednesdays are slamming, like all this kind of stuff. Oh, Wednesdays are super slamming. What's why? What's going on? Oh, we do this. Da, 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 da. 
So I, you're just trying to learn about the bar, mostly, I guess, to get to where you're saying, where you already know that it fits in, um, which is, I think, a long road. I, I, I often have to go back, you know, a couple of times, if not many, before, I, you know, you really get in there to know who the buyer is, who's the decision maker. You know, maybe there is a head bartender, but, you know, so-and-so who sits in an office does the buying, like things like that. Um, yeah. Uh, and that's why, like you said, we spend a lot of time just sitting in restaurants and bars because, you know, these are our clients. These are our people. So um takes a while to get that done. Um, and then, you know, hopefully you have a friend or two in the bar. Um, and then maybe you get the the buyer's, you know, business card and you, you shoot them an email and maybe they ignore you for a while. That happens a lot. That happens a lot. And um, And then, okay, so now we're at the place where you finally have the meeting. Um, you're there. I usually, like I said, I have a couple of different um, note sheets um, about the brand. You know, one is geared for um, maybe the cocktail makers um, or the head bartender or something like this. One is more about, um, you know, cost per ounce, um, you know, the general pricing where the case breaks are. I mean, I think we all generally call that a sell sheet um, with just like a little bit of information on each of your SKUs and um, the costing and things like that. Um, this is probably really boring. <laughs> story for no, it's but, not. It's, um, this, nobody talks about this. Does not so, read any books. This is vital stuff. <laughs> so you have that there and then you have your notes of things that you want to make sure that you mention to this uh, person. And then um, I always like to make sure I have enough samples. Um, I live in New York where we don't have cars, which I know is like sort of strange in this industry. Um, I get a little bit jealous of coworkers and things who can like put four cases in the back of their car and, you know, some POS and they're good for a week or whatever. I don't do that because I have to carry it all like over my shoulder and like across the body bag. I'm not a rolly bag person. I just can't do it. That's the, that's the that's the two tribes of liquor sales, rolly bag or not rolly bag. Not rolly bag. And I, I, you know, I get it. I have lots of friends who are rolly bag people, but I've experienced the moment where you walk into the bar with a rolly bag and it's almost like everyone turns. Everybody goes away. Everybody, yes, everybody <laughs> sees like, you and then suddenly everybody's <laughs> super busy and they run away. And ah, like, the rep is here. Run, uh, run, save yourself. <laughs> I'm nice. I'm nice. I swear. Okay. So I'm going to walk in with a, a like crossbody bag, probably, um, you know, my, my bottles that I'm going to pour from, but, um, what I was getting to is smaller samples for them, um, to keep. And depending on the bar, we've already done our research. So we know this bar, if this is a bar where I'm hoping to get a cocktail menu placement and they're going to want to, um, you know, make a few cocktails and I bring a bigger, smaller sample like maybe a 375 or something like that something for them to keep what would, um, what would a small sample be like 100 ml three ounces or it, it, it depends i have like um two ounce samples um you know th that could be just like your 50 mls like you know if my the brands i've worked on the last couple of years didn't have 50 ml so you're like making your own samples with little glass mm -hmm. bottles um sometimes it's 100 ml um, or, or two, I think I have 200 mLs too. Um, but then this kind of comes in later in the meeting, it gives you an opportunity to come back. So if you leave them the samples and they need more, that's great. And then you get a little bit more FaceTime and you come back. Um, cool. but you're in this meeting now and you're sitting down with this buyer and, and um, and you, you always make an appointment. You don't just drop by, right? 
Unless they have hours. A lot of bars have hours. Like I see people on Tuesdays from two to four that you right. can just drop by. Office hours. That's yes. convenient, really, because you can be doing all your emails and stuff while you're waiting for the buyer to be free, right? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the best move is to sit and do your admin sitting at the bar. Um, but yeah, definitely make a meeting. Um, and um, then once you're there, you sample them on the product, you know, make sure you know your product well and um, try to always have like a, I try, if it, if they ask for it to have like a preferred cocktail with each one, I'm not trying to tell anybody what to do. I, you get, you're a bar owner or a bartender, you know what to do with it. But if you want to know, I'll tell you what, you know, people tend to like to make with this so that maybe that starts here. Like maybe it's a daiquiri or espresso martini or whatever it is. Um, and then usually you start talking about price, you know, pricing and, um, you know, the front line for those who don't know is the first price. It's like the one bottle first price, which is usually the most expensive. So, um, usually you're not talking in front line. You're talking in like, I, I usually go with a three case deal price because if you're doing a cocktail, you're probably going to want to buy it in either the cheapest or the cheapest that's manageable for you to not like have a whole lot of product like being held back. So three, the three case deal on it is this. Um, and then here it breaks down the bottle costs for you. And then usually that's when I would start talking about like, Oh, you know, Katie says you guys have, uh, I don't even know. A Slamming trivia Wednesday night. On night. Yeah. Yeah. A slant. Like you're doing this crazy Wednesday that is like trivia um, you know, how would you feel about, you know, a special cocktail on Wednesdays with this brand and I'll come in and I'll bring some friends and we're going to play trivia, uh, on, you know, play the trivia night and, you know, I'll, um, you know, buy a bunch of drinks for my team and maybe, maybe the winning team gets around and, um, the things spend. like that. Yeah. But we're spending legally here. We're making sure that we're, you know, buying product when we are spending the money um, and we're just supporting that account. But that's where your research comes in. You know, if you hadn't sat at the bar and talked to Katie, you didn't know that Wednesdays were the thing. And then now you're just helping add benefit to them. Um, you know, this helps them. This is like, you know, a free, cool gift for their trivia night or whatever it is. Or And then hopefully they think of you. They're like, oh, we want to do a... I don't know, and a summer party or whatever it is. Like you, you want them to think of you like when they need somebody, you know, and you can't always do it. Sometimes the ask is too much or whatever. Um, but I think it's the one thing I do want to make sure I say is that this has to be a two-way street. This has to be mutually beneficial. So that it, it doesn't make sense for me to over support you. Um, if you're not supporting me. So um, if you're asking um, for an event or some kind of activation that's going to cost $1,000, but you have only spent, you know, you've only bought three cases ever. That's, I can't really tell my boss why I needed to spend $1,000 with you if you haven't even, you know, spent that with us. So um, I, that's really important. Truly, like it is a mutually beneficial relationship. You know, you're I've had accounts in the past that would get really upset that, you know, I hadn't spent enough time. Like I had you on the menu, da da da. 
And one time, many years ago, um, an account got really upset about that. And I literally went into my expense reports and I was like, I've spent exactly X number of dollars in your bar this year. And you, which was way more like, and you have only purchased this much. I, I think you're getting a lot out of this relationship because no, we haven't done a big happy hour or anything, but I've supported you through this. So it's important that the bars realize that it's, it's got to benefit both of us. And um, yeah. Yeah. And th- I mean, there is yeah. one of the my most popular seminar ever. If you look at downloads, is called how the global drinks business works, because you can take the hottest shit hot New York City cocktail bar owner whose back bar is full of 50 best awards and tails awards. And they don't know how the liquor industry works. They sell a lot of liquor by the shot or in a cocktail. And, you know, they very often think that, you know, they'll see gray goose or whatever throwing money around and they'll be like oh i'll just ask kimmy for some of that because she sells liquor too and surely they've all got a large pot of gold when you sit one of those people down and you actually break down the economics of a brand i mean sure brands make money but not you know absolute elix copper helicopter money for sure i would say God bless giant brands who do super cool stuff like that. That's so cool. I mean, they do really fun, awesome things. The elix, I have an elix copper swan thing that I don't even know how I ended up with it, but it's super awesome. But there is a difference that in that general meeting between a field person like me and a bar or a buyer, there's a difference in marketing money and field sales support money. So, I mean, a huge difference. We're talking about buckets that are like, on opposite coasts of each other that, you know, sometimes you can get one to support the other, but there's got to be great just cause. And, um, you know, if you're a bar who is benefiting from those big, big spends, amazing. Um, but in general, I, I'd say it's helpful to know that, you know, it's, it's a two way street and brands like mine and like all brands, we support people who support us. That's, that's where it is. You know, you're, buying product, then hopefully I'm like spending time and money in your bar and supporting you in whichever way that you would like to be supported. But yeah, yeah. there's, there is that disconnect and there's, you know, if, if you're a buyer or even somebody who works in a bar and can influence the buyer and there's a little brand you love, like, I don't know, Old Duff Geneva, it's really <laughs> simple. The more you sell of that brand, the more money the brand will have to do cool shit. You know, you yeah. want tickets to the to the ball game or you want somebody to take you out for a nice steak dinner. Well, you got to move those bottles. This comes back to what we started with, which is nothing happens till a bottle moves. Exactly. 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 And if you are supporting a brand heavily and um, th- this has happened to me before where I would walk into an account and they're they're using a competitive what spirit. OK. And they're like, oh, we've been using this. And then, you know, it's like, well. Who's the like brand person in you know for that brand? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And it's like, well, when was the last time anybody was here from that brand? And it's they're like, mm, maybe never. I just have always carried it. Then like, there's your window. There's like, well, I'm I'm here now, and I'm gonna come back. And like, if you if you support me, then I am gonna support you. And it doesn't really sound like this brand is supporting you, but I would say generally you don't want to put it that plainly. But that's the truth. It's like. 
if you are supporting, if you as a buyer are supporting a brand and they're, then reach out to them. You're not asking for a handout. You just want to have a relationship with this person, you know, and, um, and then, you know, hopefully they're supporting you too. But um, yeah, think about yeah. those relationships. So, well, let's go back to something you mentioned forecasts. So, uh, what they call in the UK and Europe, uh, the GP, the gross profit. Um, most bars will shoot for 75% or a 25% liquor cost, however you want to see it. But a lot of places go for a higher number in New York, don't they? I've heard 82 from some places. That does not surprise me. The rising costs of cocktails in this city is kind of never ending. Um, but um, I don't totally disagree with it. I think I did hear about a bar recently who was charging $24 for a vodka soda, which is crazy. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think in New York, in this city specifically, and maybe others, I'm just only talking about this one, is that I think you're, at least from the bar's perspective, you're paying for this experience. You know, you're paying to what, why did you come to this bar today and not that one or that one or that one? You know, you came here because of, whatever their little X factor is or whatever. So I'm sure that's part of it. Um, um, I can't explain it. I, I definitely, I, I, like I said, I've never been on that side where I'm like doing the costing outside of telling you what I can offer you on four costs for my sphere. Um, yeah, we have pretty hefty cocktail prices around here. Everyone says it. It's been a constant topic. I just interviewed uh, Mark Maynard, who did 30 years at Union Square Hospitality. And I said, you know, what's disturbing you at the moment? And he goes, the price of a plate of food or a cocktail in New York. You know, it's become untenable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, like, you know, $20 daiquiri at your local bar or whatever. It happens. Well, well that's it. You know, it used to be, you go to Bellamon's bar, the drinks are 30 bucks, fine. But now the $12 cocktail is $16 at the neighborhood bar. And the $18 cocktail from a cocktail bar is now 23 yeah, yeah, yep. I would say, yep. That's very, very true. Um, I've also been in conversations, like just from a brand perspective, you know, where you're talking um, about budgets and like me and the lady in, you know, I don't know, Oklahoma has the same budget as me. And I'm <laughs> like, Hello, like my drinks are, you can buy like four of them. <laughs> For the price you can buy one drink or whatever. So, but that definitely factors into our budgets, you know, in this city and in all cities, like, you know, the cost. Oh, the other thing I will say, um, you go into a bar. I know this has happened to you. And at the end of the night, the bar tab comes up and the bartender says to you, is this business or pleasure, Kimmy? Mm-hmm. And I have very mixed feelings about this. I have very mixed feelings about this. And what they're generally saying is a nice thing. Like if this is Kimmy Winkler money, I- I'm not going to charge you everything. But if this is brand money, yes, I'm going to I'm going to charge you everything. Which is fair because you want to spend money. Single thing, yeah, yeah. Um, but it does get it gets a little bit uncomfortable, you know, or whatever. I mean, and where I'm like, I don't know. I mean, no, yeah, it's. This is Kimmy Winkler money. So give me the deal. Give me the deal. I'll take it. Um, but that is the thing that comes up a lot. This well, you can money. be off duty, but still drinking your brand. And honestly, that happens a lot to me. Like my local bar, um, uh, Basic in Williamsburg. Basic, um, Munjay. I'm there 
way, way too often, but in a good way. I love it. I love it. I'll probably be there later. Um, but I often sit at the bar and I'm drinking my own brand, but I can't expense it every single time I walk in that door, you know? So, um, yeah, I guess it's a, it is definitely a good thing to ask, but it, uh, it's, I don't know. I, I get like embarrassed by it a little bit, but it's true. We're not always drinking on the clock. Not always. No, it's nice to have a place near where you live, uh, where they don't know what you do. So you can just go in there and drink beer right or have a glass of wine and we had a place myself and mrs duff uh it sits closed unfortunately parlor steakhouse but that was our place and we could go in there and have a martini uh we could bring our kid and she could have a ten dollar plate of pasta it was kind of a nice steakhouse and once i went to the toilet and i came back and elaine was like talking to the waitress who you know brought her a martini elaine didn't like she says no no we're in the liquor industry and i was like yeah no, nope, no, nope, it's okay. We got, I got this. I'm like, don't give it away. <laughs> we need a safe haven. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love that. Go I drink Modelo I, and Fireball. Yes, yes, yes. I have a, I have a bar like that in my neighborhood. It's uh, a really, it's right down the way called um, Tom and Jones, um, which is like uh, part of the like whiskey Brooklyn family kind of a thing. Um, oh, okay. But um, they have a shuffleboard table, and they often have um sporting events on the TVs they have a Pac-Man machine in the corner and the bartenders are awesome um they, they definitely know us and um i think i think they do know that i work in booze but they definitely don't care like this is not like oh you know that's Kimmy from whatever you know they're just like oh that's Kimmy she lives in the neighborhood like whatever and um uh i remember i was there and i tried for the first time um, it was one of the new, I can't remember now, this is terrible, but it was one of the new like hard seltzers All right. and, and it was kind of like an orangey flavor. And I remember him being like, Oh, you're going to love this. And then he poured, um, like vanilla vodka into the seltzer water. Strong and move. I like, I was just like, I love that this just happened right now. I love this. And I was, he's like, it tastes like an orange Julius. And I was like, it actually really does. This is awesome. Um, I do think it's super important to have those bars that is like, not only is it not work, but it's like the opposite, you know, you're just there being a real person or whatever. Because otherwise bars are ruined for you. You come in and you're automatically like, you know, you got to go off the clock sometime. So totally. I mean, even still, I'm looking at the back bar and like a, a real fun game that we like to play is you're like, okay, who hangs out here? You know, you're like, oh, I see tons of Campari stuff. I bet Leah comes in here a lot, you know, or something like that, you know, but that is just like instinct or whatever. We're never going to stop doing that. I'll go to another country and like, look at the brands behind the bar and be like, Whoa, you know, they're doing all kinds of stuff over here. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to something you said about poor costs. So because the standard bottle in the U S is a 750 ml, even though they've changed the laws and now you can have 700s, that's got 25, 30 ml measures in it. So the accepted wisdom in New York is that you're to go in a menu cocktail, your price shouldn't be more, wholesale price to the bar, than a dollar an ounce, right? So that's $25 for a bottle. What, in your experience, is the upper limit for the per ounce cost? to go in a menu cocktail. Obviously, there's 11 Madison Parks and Dead Rabbits. They can go to an infinite level. 
But, you know, for a decent cocktail bar with a menu, mm-hmm. what in your experience is the range nowadays? You know, I don't think I have a really good answer to this question because whatever brand I'm working on, I'm going to try to figure out and whatever it costs, I'm going to try to figure out how to get it on your menu. So um, uh, I don't know the exact price for like, I, I really don't. I don't have an answer for this because I'm going to try if my if my bottle costs, you know, wholesale, you know, thirty three dollars. I'm still going to try to figure out a way to get you to want to put it in a drink. So um, oops, my doorbell. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Go get it. I can pause this if you like. Yeah. Is that OK? And we're back. And I finally caved. I'm not drinking a big glass of whiskey. I'm having a delicious and sophisticated European glass of vermouth at 11 a.m. Yay! I have to go on a call after this about logistics, shipping, and the CBMA. And if you think getting stuff from a North Bergen warehouse into Manhattan is boring, try shipping 23,000 bottles from Holland to uh, San Diego. Oh, my God. Maybe I should have put some uh, some vodka in there. <laughs> so what would be the ways? Let's let's say hypothetically, you've got a brand. The wholesale price to a bar is, let's say, $38, right? That means the pour cost is going to be $1.50 an ounce, mm-hmm. right? What would be the kind of strategies that could get that into a menu cocktail? I mean, that, that's pricey. That's a... That's All right, let's be realistic. Let's go back to, what did you say, um, 32? Yeah, 32 or 33. I mean, if you're, if, depending on the buyer, sometimes they'll be very straightforward with you. Like, you know, this is the price I'm trying to get to. And like, obviously. That's a dollar 32. Thing... <laughs> okay. Right. Um, but, you know, first thing you obviously try to just see where, you know, the deepest discount is on invoice, like with the distributor. And then because of our, then that's when you start going into how you're going to support the account. How are you going to make it valuable to them? I mean, we can't legally do what you're saying they do in Europe and stuff, whereas like just give them money. You cannot do that. So um, you have to be a little bit more creative to like keep it on the up and up. And so that we all still have jobs and everything. Um, uh, you, You just have to find value to the bar, like find value. They, you know, um, sometimes it's as simple as something that you can help them get, um, or like a copper like flamingo, said, like, like a copper flamingo. Although I don't think, <laughs> I'll bring I don't in this absolute how, elixir if you carry my brand. <laughs> I don't know how they even did that because technically those things are way too expensive to give, but I don't know. I don't think it but matters anymore, Kimmy, because I'm 99% sure absolute elixir no longer exists. Well, I just meant like even even back then, like how were they? Uh, maybe they were on loan. I think you could do that. You could loan them. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I don't know how they did that because legally you can't give anybody anything that expensive. But mm. um, I guess all I can say is you have to add value and however you're able to do it. So we, we cannot straight give you money. We can't illegally lower the price, but we can support you in... You tell people what what you need, and they'll try to help you figure out how to get it. But um, legally, no, I cannot get that bottle down to, you know, $20 a bottle. But I can support you in other ways 
No, are, just to interrupt for people who might not realize, apart from all the Byzantine levels of regulation in the USA, New York is a particular special unicorn in that it's what's called a price posting state. And that means every month, every liquor and wine and beer for sale in New York State has to post its prices and discounts. And that is fucking that. No, no under the table deals. That's it. Which is kind of a level playing field, which is kind of nice. But that's what Kimmy is meaning when she says, no, we cannot get the price of this. Because every month you have to say what next month's pricing is going to be and you cannot deviate, right? And you have to do it like 60 days in advance. So you, you have to like 60 days before that month, might even be 90, but like you have to say what the prices are. And that means every price. So for one bottle, for one case, for two cases, for five cases, for 10, whatever your deepest mm-hmm. discount is, you you have to post it. Um, and, and if if you are an account who you feel like you're going to be ordering, you know, and you work with smaller brands like I do, if, but if you're an account and you're going to start buying, you know, 15 cases at a time or something like that, that maybe they don't have posted, tell them and they'll add it, you know, as fast as they can, um, you know, to like get a, a better deal. But like, maybe they don't often have accounts that want to buy at that level. And maybe they can get something in for you that's a little bit like, I mean, it will be for everybody. It's not for you. It will be for everybody. Um, but th- there might be some workarounds there. But um, I'm kind of being repetitive here. But other than that, you you have to find a way to um, support that account that they like want. And, you know, how how do they want to be supported that makes it worth their while? Um, I mean, it's, it is it can be tricky for bar managers, owners, other buyers um they're not that creative uh ambassadors and salespeople uh can be sources of great creativity in in what they oh. do so again going back to we've you've got a product and the product's good and all that but the pour cost is a dollar 32 an ounce which is you know doesn't have to be a dollar but dollar 32 is up there uh apart from coming in with your friends and doing spends and buying around for the winner. Are there any other strategies you've employed in the past? Um, if, if you have upcoming events that you know you're going to need to host, you know, you can offer to, and you're going to pay money to a bar somewhere to do this. You know, you, you have a budget for uh, an event that's $5,000 and, you know, you will, you will use that $5,000 at this account because I have to throw this, um, pairing dinner for, you know, whatever it is, X number of people. And this is my budget. Then, you you know, you decide to do that there at this account. Um, things like that are, you know, always great. Or if you have a specific program that you're rolling out, you know, um, um, including them in that, because that's um, additional money that you have to invest into an account. Um, yeah. I mean, you just, you just, I guess what I'm agreeing with you, you have to be creative. Um, with the budget you have. And so um, I I have two brand ambassadors that work for me and they have KPIs that they have to get done. So if an account is going to need a lot of attention, I'll likely assign them to my BAs because they have um, time and money and um, programs that they have to execute. So now, you know, account A is yours and you can utilize your funds with this account. We're trying to support them. Um, that's an excellent use of it. Um, also, you know, other things just like education and things like that, if, if they're interested in that. Um, yeah, I mean, those are the things. 
you ever do consumer facing things? There's a friend of mine who has a drinks importer company in the UK. And as you might imagine, everybody expects you to walk in with a checkbook because you can legally pay to play. And it could be as much as 80,000 pounds to be the pouring vodka for a year. Right. It's not always related to sales. If you've got a very prestigious outlet, they'll, you know. Uh, so if you're a little brand, that sucks. So he would go into bars and he'd say, well, look, I tell you what, uh, you stock my gin and advertise a gin tasting to your customers. Ten pounds ahead. I'll come in. I'll bring all the gins. I'll do it. They'll have a great time. And I bet they'll stick around afterwards and order some more drinks, and you keep that £10 per head, which is, you know, it's going to be, maybe it's 10 people, maybe it's 20 people, and you've got £200, it's $250, and you've got 20 people in your bar who've just been drinking gin for an hour and a half, and it didn't cost you a penny. So Absolutely, that's a great idea. I, I've done things like that where, and you're also talking about expressions that maybe the bar doesn't already have, and then I would actually double down on this. and. Whoa. I I would then go to the nearest liquor store and like get a code that those people could get a discount if they went and bought a bottle. There so you go. then so then now you have this store that maybe didn't even carry your product before you got them to bring in, you know, I don't know, three cases, you know, you get the discount code for the restaurant next door and so now you have uh, consumers at home um drinking your product. Um, Wild. See, this is why you're on the Philip Duff show. <laughs> um, yeah, but I love I love pairing dinners and I think consumer facing stuff is great. It's, I mean, it's you need the bartender to talk about it, but you also need the consumer to buy it and to be interested in it. Um, I think we have a lot of consumers out there that are the ones that are like, I'll have a Jameson. And then you're like, the bar's like, I don't, we don't carry Jameson. And then they're like, and then the bartender's like, we have Tullamore Dew. And they're like, no, that's okay. I'll have a Grey Goose and soda. And then, you know what I mean? Where there's like, they're just calling out brands that they know and not necessarily like realizing that Jameson is Irish whiskey. Um, so I think anytime you can get in front of a consumer and get them to um, one, know your brand, but identify it with the category um, just in general is great. So yes, I love your pairing dinner idea. And tasting. <laughs> oh, it's, it's Michael Vachon from Maverick Drinks in the UK. If you're listening, Michael, I'll see you in October. Um, <laughs> you bring us on to the thorny issue of consumers because the hard fact is everywhere in the world except Asia, 80% of liquor sales are off premise, including in the USA. So eight out of every 10 bottles is bought by somebody in a liquor store, not by the cocktail or the shop. So the on premise bars and restaurants and all is the shop window by which you build a brand and you test and you get advocacy. And also, I want to ask you this. There's a a bit of received wisdom in the wine world that uh, top-end restaurants want to have a bit of exclusivity in the wine that they serve, right? They don't want to be serving wine that you can buy for $11.99 at Costco. Uh, it is my experience a little bit that if you build a brand in the off-trade, it can be very hard to build it in the on-premise because it can get to a certain size and then the bartenders on a certain level are like, well, why the fuck haven't I heard of that? The, the greatest example recently is Tito's. By the time mm -hmm. Tito's got to New York, you were pretty much forced to carry it as a bar. What are your thoughts yeah. on that 
on-premise, off-premise split? Um, I, I think brands are mo- in New York, in New York, brands are mostly built, like getting some notoriety in the on-premise. That's why there are so many people like me <clears throat> and brand ambassadors out there because you need the bartender to talk about it and to love it and to put it on the menu and they read it. And then the consumer will like then go buy it when they're buying a bottle. Um, the exclusivity level, I mean, we see that in, in wine is different because wine is different, but wine is different. In wine is different. But spirits, you often see that where, you know, the like single barrel programs where, you know, this bar buys an entire barrel of, you know, whatever whiskey or whatever rum or whatever anything. Um, uh, and that's definitely like a very exclusive thing. Or even sometimes in New York, we have exclusive barrels to New York, you know, where you only in this this state got the entire single barrel or whatever like that. Um, but in sort of my niche, which is now small brands, is like um, it's you have to get the on-premise people to put it on a menu or to at least be talking about it or to recommend it um, because that liquor store does have a million, you know, big brands that they they see every day or whatever. And you need to get them to like, look for yours. So in the same way that we go and um, try to educate bartenders or, um, you know, at least educate them on our brands, then you're also doing that in off-premise stores. Um, and it's silly things that probably don't care about, but like, Bring the guys who are running the cases from the back. You bring them T-shirts and hats and things like that. They love that stuff. And like, then they're like wearing your shirt. And then um, also you, you as a consumer and we'll like, you see the trucks from the distributor driving all around town and they're completely wrapped in a brand. And those brands pay a bajillion dollars to wrap the trucks with that. Um and then also, you know, like the window displays and the floor displays and things like that. It's just off premise is just such a different world um, because you're you're capturing the consumer in a completely different way where they're sort of self guided. Where in a bar, you have the you're led by the cocktail menu and the bartender. Um, so I don't know. Definitely, I think you have to like win the love and affection of bars and bartenders first, so that they're showcasing it. And then, you know, give some love and attention to the retail store so that it, like, remains top of mind. So you can um, go into a bar, sit at the bar, have a cocktail, get to know Liz the bartender, find out that the lesbian roller disco trivia night is Wednesdays <laughs> and they're always slammed. What, how do you get to know a liquor store? Um, it's, it's kind of the same. It, it, you generally go in and just say hello. I'll, I'll bring small samples and leave it for them. And usually they're a little bit more cut and dry. It's like, I'm Kimmy. I represent this brand. I, maybe three, three cool things. You know, we're an organic and sustainable um, brand from this country. Um, I'll leave you the sell sheet. This is the pricing. I have in-store tastings available to you if, if you like in-store tastings. Um, and then in our now, you know, day and age or whatever with... Um, multiple delivery services and um you know how people get their booze is different now you know you can order from drizzly or you can order online shipped nationwide and so i a couple of times i've tried to get involved with liquor stores in a way where you know um 
add something kind of like a ready-made like vap. Uh, like, you know, sometimes you go into a store where it's like Christmas and it's your same old bottle of whiskey, but it comes with two cups or something or two glass. Or gift pack. Yeah. 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 Um, we, we call them vats. And um, so you can maybe like get in with them where like my brands don't have those. So, you know, maybe you can give them something that's like they can post on their website. Like when you buy um, this brand, you get this little whatever it is, this this tiki mug. We'll give you this tiki mug with it or whatever it is. But it's it's kind of the same thing. You're trying to add value to their business. So if they want tastings, a lot of stores love to have in-store tastings and you know, I I use a um, a company that you probably know of called Bowery Collective um, when I do in-store tasting and they hire awesome, knowledgeable people that um, I love. I sell that to a liquor store. I'm like, hey, I've got a great agency. These people are super well-trained on the brand. They can answer a lot of questions about, you know, the spirit, but then also the category. They love that. They love that. If it's a really important store, um, and I have a good really, I'll go and do the tasting myself. Like this benefits me, you know, I'll, I'll go sit, sit there from five to seven on a Friday on the Upper West Side and pour my booze. I just did three to six at Aster last Saturday. So good for you. That's a tough one. Yeah. that's. I mean, it's a great one. It's a tough one to get. So yeah. Awesome. Um, I'm very lucky. Vincent and Nima emailed me. Uh, oh, wow. And like they say, hey, I'll, <laughs> you ask, I'm there, man. Like, you know, I'm doing this thing. And it, it is a great way to get to know people. And it, sure. it, it was very funny. There was so there's always like the old guy, usually white, and you're not quite sure if he's drunk and he's softly spoken. That guy always shows up at some stage. And then there's like curious people. And then there's always the people that confound you. And literally, one of the funniest was this guy just strolled by picked up a bottle, headed for the cash register. And he said, this is what I can use to make the Negroni from Katana Kitten. And I'm like, yeah, this, this is it. And I'm like, like, easiest sale of the day. Yep. But yeah, it yeah. really is cold face interaction with consumers. That That is a fun, like, just little test, you know, like knowing your consumer, because one of them is going to want to know how to make like a really nerdy cocktail. And the other one's going to want to mix it with lemonade. And you're like, yeah, totally. Let's try it. Let's go. I also, when I do in-store tastings, I like to think of, um, um, I, I'm thinking of a particular store that's like a little bit north of Times Square. Um, and I love to give them, they're often tourists or whatever, like bar suggestions that like, you know, around there, like, you know, I don't know. Um, what a Joe Allen's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or somewhere where they can get, a oh, you should go to Nothing Really Matters. It's super cool. It's in the subway. And they have a cocktail with my brand in it. You should give it a try. Um, things like that. I think they really appreciate that. And it, you know, resonates with the customer. Anyway, you can get them to think of you again. It's great. So when yeah. you're selling to a liquor store, you obviously you go back to a bar several times. And if any brand owners are listening, if you go to a bar three times before you get a meeting with the buyer, that's, you know, five, six cocktails. You're going to be out 180 bucks before you even have the meeting. You might get the meeting faster than that. And like sometimes you meet, sometimes a lot of business is done very informally, um, at least in the city, for sure. Like um, you are sitting at the bar and you're talking to that bartender and it turns out 
they would like a sample and you leave them a sample and then the menu pitch is coming up. They pitch a drink with your menu. You never even really had to have the meeting. You know, you just engaged with the bartender. Um, it, it does take three times sometimes and sometimes it's very formal. But honestly, for me, I would say more often than not, it's it's not a super formal that meeting where at three o'clock on Tuesday, come talk to Joe, mm. you know, whatever. A lot of times it's just, it's, I don't want to say casual, but like it is just a little bit more of a natural engagement or, um, and you, you do a lot of following people around town, which was like a really crazy thing after COVID, especially like, Why they you don't know, work, yeah. Yeah, Elaine worked here for five years, but suddenly she's over here and whatever. And so you're like kind of, you know, following your um, supporters around town and making sure that they have everything they need to, you know, continue doing that or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I I would say my, my style of selling is probably a lot more just relationship based. And then a lot of times you'll, you do spend a one thing we haven't really spoken about is you do spend a lot of time with distributors because remember in our cool country, like uh, the three tier system, you, I, as much as you like me, I cannot actually sell you a bottle of booze. You still have to go to the distributor and order it from them. So um, you need them, you know, you're going to have all your um, sales reps, phone numbers, like on your favorites or whatever. And you're like, I went into um, Sally's bar and I talked to Katie and she wants three cases next week. And they're like, okay, cool. And then you do that a couple of times for that rep and then you're making them money. And so, cause you know, they work on commission. And so, you know, now you have a little bit of a relationship with that rep and then they start bringing you up, um, you know, at their next meeting. And then I mean, th this must be so boring for many of you, but like, then you start looking at their account list and you're like, Hey, I see that you have this account, this account, and this account on your list. I'd really like to get in there. And maybe they don't even want to go in with you, but they'll give you the name of the person. And then right. you go, you go in and you say, Hey, so-and-so from this distributor gave me your name. You know, I'd love to talk to you about this. So it's, a, it's definitely a hustle, you guys. It's definitely a hustle. ABC, <laughs> always be closing. Yes, be for closers. You're getting the meetings however you can get them. You're trying to build relationships with buyers, distributor reps, anybody who will listen. Make sure you're taking care of the bartender um, because they're the, the like front line selling it to the guests. And they move on to be managers and buyers and things like that. So Very quickly. Very, very quickly. Very quickly. So be kind. Don't be pushy. Be nice. Make sure you're recognizing that you're presenting them with something that's worthwhile to them and not just like hitting your goal or whatever. Um, and be friendly. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Do so. you make a list of like accounts you want to visit on a monthly or weekly basis? You say, okay, I've got to go to this place at least once a month. Yes, but it changes constantly. It's like you have a goal. You have you're like um, your top accounts. Maybe you're make, you're putting it in your calendar a couple of weeks so you don't forget. Um, I think m m like my bosses like to think that you're going to be like I'm going to spend the day in the East Village and like just walk around to all your accounts, but also potential accounts. It doesn't really work like that because. If, you know, Linda on the Upper West Side wants to talk to me about something and I've planned to spend the entire day in Williamsburg, I've got to figure out a way to get up there to go see Linda. Like, you yeah. know, 
if, if she's asking for it, if she's asking for it, or if, um, you know, a rep needs you or whatever. I, I, I think you have to have a plan, but plan for it to change like every single day, every single day. And then you're constantly kind of putting out fires when things go crazy or, you know, this account ordered this, but they got this expression and you're trying to help them fix it to save your menu placement and things like that. Um, but yes, you, you need to have a list. You need to have a list of accounts that you either are trying to get into or accounts that, you, that need ongoing support. Um, and, you know, make it, I, I don't, I definitely don't do monthly. I do weekly. Like here's who I want to get to this week. Um, but then I do put reminders in my calendar for like a couple weeks down the way. Don't forget that you should check in here or you have a meeting. This is just so simple, but you have a meeting where the buyer's like, we're not flipping our menu until September, you know, or what, well, you know, that's now, but you know, a couple months down the way. And then you need to remind yourself that got to go check in with Joe because he's going to start working on his menu or whatever it is. So be organized, but um, be ready for it to change. Also, I look at, it's very, a little boring, but I look at who, I have a report that's called Last Buys um, that I look at every single morning when I first get up. And it's it's who bought since yesterday, basically, or, you know, whenever the reporting rolls in and then I can see, oh, 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 oh. And um, I work for little brands. So usually there aren't a whole lot of surprises. Usually I know what's going on or I've been waiting for that to hit. But sometimes, you know, a couple will come in and you're like, oh, I did not know that this account started buying my product again. Um, and you got to go check in with them. Why did you buy it? Like, you know, you, you know, many split guys too. So like, if this is your best friend and they put you on the menu, that does not mean you get to be on the menu like forever and always like, and you have to know that. And I have to explain that to my bosses sometimes too, that like, you know, well, we might miss the fall menu, but hopefully we get like the spring one, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because it's not the bar's job to like hit your goals. They have their own, you know, they're trying to, create the bar menu and the environment or whatever that they want to create. And maybe that isn't about you this time. Well, they've got a lot of people that want to be on those menus. And, you know, I always say whether you're in a place that allows pay to play or not, you're going to have big brands on your menu because they are going to fly you to tails and take you out to Keen Steakhouse and, all the fun stuff. And also, there's an awful lot of really good big brands, right? And mm-hmm. as a bar, you want to be in good with Bacardi and Diageo and Perno and Sazerac. And you do. But you don't want, shall we say, the, the English disease or the Dutch disease, or the German disease. I'm sure you've had this when you visit those countries. You walk into a bar and you're like, oh, this is a Bacardi house. Because <laughs> yeah. all Bacardi and there's nothing else. You know, they've they've gone for the listing fee, of course, to maximize it. But you then lose credibility to a degree that even the consumer can see. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think probably and I, I'd love to know what you think of this. An 80-20 rule is about right. Like I, would, I, I agree with that. I think also um, I remember a few years ago um, I was talking with a coworker of mine and he pointed out and he used to run a bar. And he pointed out to me that if there are any more, there can only be like three, no more than three things in a cocktail on a menu 
that a very general consumer doesn't know what it is. So if if you are going to be the thing that maybe they don't recognize, like it can't also have like, you know, nine other really obscure ingredients because then their eyes glaze over and they, you know, move on to something else, which in, in the same way, if, if the bar is very obviously bought, you're like, I don't really know if I believe that you think all six of these cocktails need this vodka in it, but clearly some. Yeah, I don't think consumers even think of that, but on a subliminal level, it gets them. Yeah. Yeah, I feel. I, and the twenty, yeah, the, if you have twenty percent small rum, small brands, your Copali, your Old Duff, your fucking Tosba Mezcal, that's enough to make people go, "Ooh, interesting." You know, like places like, for instance, uh, Gen Yamamoto in Tokyo or Mace Cocktail Bar here. It's great. I'm lucky if I can recognize one ingredient out of every five cocktails, but that's why I go there. In general, though. That weirdness rule you just uh, explained so well does hold true. Yeah. So I, I think about that a lot because usually my brand is not is not a household name. So, you know, I, I want them to be interested in the drinks still, um, you know, w- before they start moving on to the Tito's drink <clears throat> or whatever it is. But yeah. But I mean, the, the I think what I've been kind of tap dancing around here a little bit is the pay to play thing does happen here. It does happen. Yeah, it does. Um, it's it's not in that true form legal, but it happens in various ways. Um, um, but I try to keep it on the super up and up, you know. So supporting and and mostly my brands. You you, I want people who are going to love them and try to like create drinks that are going to really express what they are and um, showcase them. I don't want to be like hidden. So. But again, what happens when you do that is you will never as a bar owner or bartender, you'll never see that rep again. Like literally until next year when it's time to do the next deal. The pay to play rep. That's yeah. true. Because they, like, they pay. Yeah. They not pay to be rep. sexist, but the situation you just said, you'd say to a bar like, hey, I'm going to come in on lesbian roller disco trivia night with my friends. Right. Well, you're a woman and that's going to be a group of women, right? Okay. In the bar, drinking. And that is a valuable thing to any bar manager or bar owner, more so than a group of men. It's not about, you know, being hit on by guys or anything like that. It's just a demographic that really works well. I, I don't think I, I thought of it that way. I mean, I see your point. But for me, I thought I'm going to come in. I'm going to bring friends. I'm going to buy them drinks. I'm probably going to buy your consumers drinks anyway. You know, you have to be careful about how you do that, too, because you're not trying to take money away from the bar from a customer who is going to buy a drink anyway. But like Mm, if I can, if, you know, if we're featuring, you know, this daiquiri or whatever it is, and, you know, there's a group over here that's on this roller disco night and they're having a great time, like, let me buy you around. And then that's true support. I am depleting my product. I'm spending extra money at your bar that wouldn't have been spent had I not been here. I'm elevating this experience for them because they feel like they got a free drink, even though I paid for it. Um, uh, Yeah. So I I didn't really think about it as being a woman bringing that element to it, but just generally just adding more money spent into the bar and elevating the experience for the customers. You know, they're, I like a free drink when I go into a bar. If the, 
bartender gives me a free drink or if there is a promo going on when I walk into the bar, I will take a picture with you. I'll hold the drink. I'll hold up your little swag thing and I'll take that free cocktail. That is a cool time. Yes, I got a cool, even though I have an extended account, I will take your free drink. So I, I don't know. I think that just, that's that's true support. You're, you're supporting me. I'm supporting you. That's how I like to do it. Keep, you know, keep it up on the up and up, but. But is it, you you know, bars are all about getting people through the door, right? And as, you know, as opposed to just writing a check, coming in, spending money, it's a far greater component of your KPIs here than in countries where you are actually allowed to pay to play. Yeah. Well, and asking the bar, what's your dead night? They're like, uh, Monday or Tuesday or Sunday. I will come in and like, you know, maybe you can hype it up or, you know, do give them a flyer that they can post that X, Y, Z is happening or, you know, whatever we're going to have. Even if it is exactly like what you said on Monday, our deadest night, we're going to have a whiskey tasting and Kimmy Winkler from Pinhook Whiskey is going to be here to from seven to nine, come by, try some whiskey, like listen to her tell you about this really cool brand. And then just even if that brings four more people into the bar that night on this dead night for this bartender who's sad he has to be here right now, that's just like, you know, you're bringing something to the table that helps. So, no, adding value, Kimmy. I think that's going to be the title of this podcast episode. (laughs) So, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. This has been really, really cool. Thank you. We Thank didn't you. get onto the whole distributor story yet um, because it's not actually 12 and I'm really going to need to have a drink if we're talking about distributors <laughs> in the USA. That's a whole other story. Yeah. Right? Um, by the time this comes out, you will have been in the job at Pinhook for a week already. Back I... on back on the whiskey beat. So the next time I see you, I'll expect you to know a huge amount about this brand. I'm sure it's really nice. Uh, where can our listeners find you online? Um, Instagram is Kimmy, which is K-I-M-I dot Winkler um, on Instagram. And yeah, I guess that's the only one. I I don't I don't know, even know how to tell my like Facebook or whatever. <laughs> but, Do you use Facebook? Uh, no, no, no. And I scroll a lot on TikTok. Um, but you I lurk. Don't you don't uh, I, post. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, it is mostly just stuff about Taylor Swift and booze. So that's about it. My whole algorithm. That's it. Well, if that's what you <laughs> click on, that's amazing. Kimmy, you're awesome. I look forward to having a nice bitter drink with you one of these days in Amori Marco again. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers, everybody. 